Good morning. Once again, welcome to Four Oaks Church. If we don't know each other, I'm Paul Gilbert, one of the members of the pastoral team. And if it seems like we're trying to make it as hot in here as it is out there, that's just a fig newton of your imagination. That's not really, we actually have our crack technical team headed up by MacGyver, Kirk Tannis, um, on that as we speak, but hopefully we can endure this first world problem. Nonetheless, glad you're here. If you're a guest, maybe you've recently moved into town, you're here with some friends looking for a church home, so glad you've, you've made your way here. We'd love to connect with you, capture your visit, stop by the guest area on the way out. We have a gift we'd love to give you just to say thanks for being here, and then just get some information in your hands about what God is doing in the life of Four Oaks Community Church. Um, this is the time in our service where we take up a public offering And let me just kind of explain, if you're new, what this is about, what it's not about. This is is not about you and I um, making an exchange with God. That if we give him something, then he's going to give us something back. Um, if, he, if, we give, if we give our money, then he gives us his grace. That's not, that's not the economy of God. It's not the way the gospel works. We give because God has first given to us through his grace and mercy, his son, Jesus Christ. And, and, and so we believe that giving back to him is a part of our, our public worship. It's an act of worship back to him. Um, we, we also take this opportunity to try to connect what we're doing in terms of giving and generosity to the mission that God has given us to take forward this gospel. And, and one of the things I want to highlight for you today as we take our offering is what one of our partnerships um, has been able to do because of your generosity. Um, I want to ask you guys to pray for this morning for Eric and Christy Neiser. They're going to to be here um, stateside here soon and with us in a a couple of weeks. They are our partners that minister um, in North Africa. Um, As we come to the churches, seven churches of Revelation this morning, um, their situation in so many ways mirrors the situation of those ancient churches. They They are a minority there. Um, they are um, ministering in just a, um, a totally different cultural context, religious context, and um, they're doing some, God's doing some amazing things through them. And so we have an evening in Morocco um, coming up on July 28th at 6 p.m. That'll be here. We'd love for you to be a part of that. It's going to be a potluck dinner, so show up, bring some grub, and we get to hear from Eric and Christy. So as we take our offering this morning, in fact, I'm going to invite our ushers to come up now. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for that night. Let's pray for our, our partnership with Eric and Christy and what God is, is doing in and through them. Lord Jesus, we're not here to make an exchange this morning. We are simply here to acknowledge through our worship the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so, Lord, thank you that the, the people of Four Oaks have just been so amazingly responsive to that gospel, have been so generous and because of their generosity, we're able to have this partnership with the Nizers. And so we lift them up to you. We pray that as they are here back in the States, that you would replenish them. You would renew their, their strength. Lord, we look forward to being together in a couple of weeks to, to celebrate and hear what you're doing through their ministry in North Africa. And so, Lord, we lift them up to you. Lord, thank you again for, for these offerings. Lord, thank you for the chance for us to partner with you in the mission of the gospel and your kingdom. And we commit them to you now. In your name we pray. Amen.
As those baskets are making their way around, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, we've been going through the book of Genesis, of course, but we're taking a seven-week hiatus to look at seven letters to seven churches. Now, I know that a lot of you have Bible PTSD when you're turning to Revelation. You're confused, you're frustrated, you thought this was going to be the opportunity to find out how it all ended, and let me just assure you it ends well, okay, in the book of Revelation. Jesus is coming back, that's the main, that's the main point. A lot of times we come with particular agendas, asking the text to answer things it wasn't designed to answer, and we can get frustrated, we can be confused, and that can lead us to sort of create a distance between ourselves and a whole book of the Bible, a book of, the, of God's Word that He has given to us for, for, to, to bless us, to encourage us, to exhort us, to correct us. And so I want to remind us as we get into Revelation 2 this morning what Revelation exactly is. We need to remember, church, that Revelation is an actual letter. You know, those things that people used to write to stick in the mail, you know, that, that my 85-year-old cousin in Tennessee still writes to us, that kind of letter. This is a letter that the Apostle John, who's the last living apostle, this is written sometime around 90 AD, he's been exiled to the island of Patmos, which is kind of a rock quarry to kind of die and breathe in this quarry dust the rest of his life. He's been exiled to Patmos, which is off of modern-day Turkey, but he's writing a letter. Jesus has given John a vision, a message, a revelation of himself, and he's given him this word to write down and to send to seven churches in modern-day Asia Minor. And we need to remember, church, that these are real people. They have real needs. They're in a real city. They have real issues. They're, they're, they have real life going on. And John is writing to give them hope and assurance that despite what seem incredible odds stacked against them, that in fact Jesus does win, the kingdom wins, the gospel wins, and because of that, they can persevere. They can endure. They can press on despite oftentimes, let's be honest, horrific human circumstances of persecution and and many such things. And as we've been seeing, as we kind of walk through these books and these letters, we're on, we're on letter three of the church in Pergamum this morning, we've seen, haven't we, that each of these churches has a distinctive identity. There's a distinctive identity each one has. We saw that the church in Ephesus was all full of truth and they're doctrinaire and they're all about you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's theologically, but the problem was they were just kind of not fun to be with. They were kind of doctrinaire. They were kind of unloving, and so Jesus wants to, to correct them. There's other churches that have been faithful that we're going to find out, but, but, but like the church in, in Smyrna last week, but they're discouraged. But as we're going to see this morning at the church in Pergamum, this is a church that's loving, no doubt, faithful in many ways, but in danger of compromising. And so Jesus wants to speak into their identity as a church. He wants to encourage them. He wants to exhort them. And because he loves them, he wants to correct them. Now, we need to understand that 
Four Oaks has an identity. In fact, every church has an identity of some sort. And, and what Jesus is inviting us in to do this morning is not merely to listen to the Word of God as individuals and to apply that Word to our lives, although it's not less than that. It's not less than that. But there's so much more, I think, that Jesus is wanting to do with these letters to the churches. He's wanting us collectively as the community of God, as the family of God, as a local church to come together to sit under his word and to hear his instruction to us. See, I think oftentimes in our individualistic, spiritual, but not religious culture, we lose that community aspect, that identity, that we as a church body are the body of Christ, that we in fact, the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. In other words, you can't figure out who we are just by looking at each individual, but we as a church are a family. And Jesus is inviting us in as a church to read it like that and to say, hey, Jesus, we want to be a church that's faithful and fruitful, and we want to be centered on the gospel, and, and we don't want to get it wrong. Or we, we want to be good stewards. We want to stand before you one day and have you say, well done, Four Oaks, good and faithful witness of mine. And so this is an opportunity to receive the grace of God as a church family. Now, if all of this talk about our church or us seems a little odd to you, um, maybe that's because Four Oaks Church has really ultimately never become your church. Let me tell you about a letter I got this week from a family that just recently moved away somewhere in, in Georgia they have moved to, and they're looking for a church. They're asking, hey, do you, do you know any good local churches? And they're reflecting on their season here at Four Oaks. And I want you just to kind of hear the way um, this couple talks about the church and how it's really become a part of their, and became a part of their collective identity while they were here. They said, Tallahassee is somewhere we tr will truly miss, especially Four Oaks. Every one was so welcoming of us into community. When we first started attending services, I don't think we fully grasped the full scope of what being a Christian meant. But over the course of our tenure, we've been taught how to truly read the Bible, not just seeing the words on the page, but truly reflecting on what is being conveyed. This has really opened up a new chapter in my life for me personally. Four Oaks has truly changed my family's lives. Who is that written to? I mean, I know it had my head at the top of the email, but it's not about me. This is about, and it's not just about you. This is about us. This is about who we are. This is, this is part of our identity as a community. And you can always tell when a church becomes, transitions from being merely a thing I go to to my family, right? And you can see it reflected in the language that, that we use. When you think about or talk about Four Oaks, is it they or y'all or them, or if you're from the Northeast, you guys, whatever, okay, any of that? 
Is it four oaks in the third person, whoever that entity may be? Or when you think about four oaks, is it us? Is it we? Is it ours? Is it mine? So I have a real call to us this morning, a real challenge to us, for you to be thinking about what is it, what will it take for you in this church body to move from being a consumer to being an owner? To being someone who says, yes, that church is, is mine because I'm a part of that church. See, John's writing to people who've identified in that way. And I think as we come together as a community, not just as individuals, but as a community sitting under this teaching, God will really bless us as a church family as we learn from the church at Pergamum. So we're going to be in Revelation 2, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to invite you, if, if you can, if you're willing, able to stand while we read this. It's a short passage, but it's a passage with some amazing punch. And I think God will bless us with it this morning. Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. May He write its truths upon our hearts this morning. You may take your seats. Let's try to keep this simple. What's the foundational message that Jesus is wanting to communicate to the church in Pergamum and by extension to us 2,000 years later? And I'm going to utilize some some language, steal some language. Pastors say, when they say utilize, they mean steal, okay? So so from Scotty Smith's book, Unveiled Hope, it's a little devotional in Revelation. And, And this is what he says, and I think this is right. Guys, the implications for being a Christian are these, and I'm quoting now, to commit to a monogamous relationship with the lover of our souls, to ruthlessly remove any barriers that stand in the way of our fellowship, our communion, and our intimacy with Christ. That's the central message. That's what 
John is wanting the church in Pergamon to grab hold of. It's what he's wanting us to grab a hold of. And, and if you say, well, well Pastor Paul, that, that sounds kind of, uh, kind of icky. I mean, you know, just m- mystical intimacy, communion. Well, if you're uncomfortable with that language, you're going to be uncomfortable with the Bible. Because that's precisely who Jesus says that we are in relationship to him. He is, we are the bride. He is the bridegroom. He has chosen us for himself. He has come to earth and sought us out and died on a cross so that we can have unhindered intimacy, communion, relationship, reconciliation with him. And if this is reminding you of the, of the language of Genesis 1 and 2 about marriage oneness, it should. It should. Remember when we talked about this a few weeks ago from Genesis, we said that the, the, the primary purpose of, of marriage is oneness. That, that, that in fact, God has, has set a course for us that we can evaluate our marriages by saying, are we moving towards intimacy? And I don't mean just physical intimacy. I mean intimacy, oneness in all areas. Or are we moving towards isolation? And the reason that that's such a powerful metaphor, the reason we all get it, is because it's based upon this ultimate biblical reality. The same is true in our relationship with Christ. We're never in neutral. And one of the things that we talked about and that we need to, again, revisit here is that when, when, when we pursue oneness in marriage, for example, that's not, that doesn't merely mean that we say no to certain things, although it does mean that. You know, on a fundamental level, it means saying no to all other sexual relationships, right? Because there's now a relationship, a marriage of exclusivity. So it certainly means saying no to many things and a reordering of priorities and, and such. But you and I know that marriage is so much more than that. Oneness doesn't come just by saying no. Oneness happens by saying yes to certain things. It means saying yes to our beloved. It means saying yes to pursuing oneness and intimacy in every area of our life. And John uses this same tactic this morning in talking about the church in Pergamum. John's not up here this morning simply saying, don't do that. Bad Christian. No sex outside of marriage. No eating food sacrificed to idols. No hanging around with the world. No, no fun. No nothing at all. That, that's not John's approach. It's not Jesus' approach. See, John's approach is to help us understand what it is that we're saying yes to. See, this is why... John spends the whole first chapter in Revelation talking about whom? Jesus. And Pastor Scott hit on this a couple of weeks ago and unpacked this, where John paints this amazing amazing image and picture of who Jesus Christ is. And it's a little strange language because it's symbolic, it's apocalyptic language, but talking about swords out of mouths and hair that's on fire and feet that are burnished like bronze, And all of that imagery is meant to communicate something to us about our beloved, about who we have committed our life to, about who loves us, who's laid down their life for us. 
And so what John does when he addresses each of those churches, each of these seven churches, we're on church number three, he draws upon a part of the image in chapter one of who Jesus is and applies it to that church's individual situation. The thing that that church needs to hear the most about as it relates to who Jesus is. Isn't that a, because that, that's, that's actually a, a pattern for ministry. So many times when we are saying no to particular things, we're emphasizing merely obedience or disobedience. We're missing the heart of the gospel of what Jesus is calling us to in relationship to him. And this morning, what we're going to find out is that John uses a very particular pertinent image of Jesus, and you see this in in verse 12, look there, where he says, to the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He repeats this again in verse 16, where he says, therefore have some... He says, therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon in war against them with what? The sword of my mouth. Now, if you've spent any amount of time in God's word, that, that imagery, that language, those metaphors should, should sound pretty familiar. In fact, they're drawn from the Old Testament. It was Isaiah 49.2 where Isaiah talks about the word of God coming out of his mouth like a sword. We think about Ephesians chapter 6, the whole armor of God. What in fact, how is the word of God described? It is described as the what? The sword of the spirit. And of course, probably most well known is that passage from Hebrews 4. Let's read it together. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's the imagery that Jesus is drawing from. Whatever is going on in the church of Pergamon, and we're going to talk about it in here in just a second, what they most need to be reminded of, what we need to be reminded of, is in fact the very power, the very effectiveness, the, the very, I'm trying to just find the word, the very life of God as found in his word. As given to the Old Testament prophets, it's now found its way into the Old Testament. As given to the New Testament apostles, which has found its way into the New Testament. This is described as God's word as a living, active, two-edged sword. Now, why is it described in this way? Why does the writer of Hebrews describe the word of God in, in these sort of military or weaponry terms? Now, what, obviously, what does a sword do? We know a sword cuts, it pierces, it protects, it defends. But let's press the analogy a little further. A sword, for someone who knows how to use it, can work for anyone. A sword is not discriminating. 
taken into battle, it can work just as effectively on anyone. When you, unless you're like a Civil War buff reenactor person, and if you are, God bless you, um, not saying anything negative about that hobby vocation, but unless you're a Civil War reenactor, you don't carry a, a sword onto the battlefield for a photo op opportunity, right? You take it because it has a very specific purpose, and that is to make war. And in fact, in verse 16, Jesus uses that very language. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. What does that mean? I'm coming to speak myself. I'm coming to pour out my, my rule and my reign. See, God rules us by his word. And, and this church in Pergamum particularly needs to hear that. Now, what was going on, what do we surmise was going on in the church at Pergamum that would necessitate them needing to be reminded of this? Well, if you look at verse 13 or 14, verse 13, it says, and he says this twice, once in 13, once in 14. He says, I know where you dwell, where you dwell, that's where Satan's throne is. So you could, somebody could say, where are you moving to? Satan's throne, okay. The place also in verse 13 where Satan dwells. Now, if you imagine for a second, if I was to, to write a letter to you about the city of Tallahassee, and I were to describe certain features of this city, like, you know, every Saturday throngs of 85,000 gather at the southwest corner of the, of the, of the FSU campus to to venerate and to cheer and, you know, immediately you know what that's all about, right? Oh, I know what he's talking about and that's football and that's where people go. And that. But somebody reading this 2,000 years later may not get that, probably wouldn't understand that. So while this might be strange language to us, it wouldn't have been strange to the people at Pergamum. I think they would have known immediately what Jesus is referring to because, you see, in Pergamum, was unique in this way. While all throughout the Roman Empire, everyone had to bow down and worship Caesar. That was not unique. That was everywhere. Now, you could believe anything. You could do anything in your private life. You could burn your incense in your home. You can go to as many temples, have as many tiki statues in your house as you want to. All that's totally fine. Just acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. That was the case for all of these churches, Christians were being persecuted because many of them were not doing that. But what was unique about Pergamum is that it was the very first temple in all of Asia Minor that was built for that very purpose. This was sort of ground zero for emperor worship. And if you came riding into Pergamum, and you could sort of see the, 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 the Parthenon or the, that section of the city where all the temples and such were built. It was on a high ridge, a cone. You could look up and you could see it. And in a very will, real way, when you looked at that, you would say, man, that is just Satan's throne. That is, that is, that is evil. That is wickedness, just thinking about all the things that are happening and the false gods that are being worshipped and the temple prostitution and, and the sacrifices that are being made to the, these false gods. So they would have known full well immediately what 
Jesus is talking about here. They also would have known full well the implications of that reality. Because there were two things that were happening, I think, for them that were putting enormous pressure on them to compromise. One was, was this act of worshiping the emperor. Remember, you could do anything you wanted in this pluralistic society, but just don't say that your religion is better than somebody else's, right? But with Christians, they were faced with this dilemma. Do I worship Caesar? I do, I not. And people were losing their heads, literally. Antipas seemingly one of those people. But there, there was also a second thing that was going on. In the ancient world, um, when you had a trade, like you, either you were a sailor or you made um, or woodwork or stonemasonry or, or anything else that raising husbandry animals, those sorts of things, in order to practice in the ancient Near East and the Roman Empire, you had to be a part of a, be a, part of a trade guild. It's kind of like a, an ancient version of our union, right? You had to be a card-carrying member of that particular trade guild in order to buy and sell, in order to make a living. But what was different about trade unions then is that each of them had their own little individual regional god that all of them recognized. And there would be a temples all throughout the city built to these various gods, and so when these trade guilds would get together, they weren't like hanging out at the sports bar, like watching Wimbledon, which is happening right now. Just wanted to mention that. It's happening right now. And they, weren't, they, they weren't into that. That's not what they did. They came together and they sacrificed. And they drank. And they partied. And they consummated their partnership with this deity by the, by, at the very end of these evening celebrations and festivals, by entering into sexual immoral um, interactions with cult prostitutes. And there was immense pressure on people, Christians, to participate in this because this was your livelihood. If you didn't come, if you didn't participate, if you weren't a member, if you didn't worship the gods, if you didn't in, indulge in the in the cultic prostitution, then that might mean you weren't going to make a living. It might mean you didn't have a job. It might mean you'd be kicked out of your house or out of the city or lose your family or be ostracized. These are all part of the immense pressures felt by the church and in Pergamum to compromise. In fact, there was such an immense pressure to compromise, there, there arose in the church a group of people. And, and here they're, they're, they're called the Nicolaitans. They, they are sort of, and, and they sort of are born out of the spirit of the Old Testament prophet Balaam. And they were basically saying things like this, Christian, come on. It doesn't have to be that hard. Sex, what you do over here, that's, that's just your private life. That doesn't have any relevance to your heart before God. Just, I mean, do what you've got to do. Make the compromises that you've got to make in order to function in this city. Because th think of, you've got to provide for your family. You have a reputation to uphold. Now, now, come on. I mean, religion's important, but let's not get fanatical about it. Let's not get crazy. Let's not get radical. 
Just kind of slow your roll a little bit, Christian. See, he draws on this language from the Old Testament, Balaam. We don't have time to turn to numbers to unpack this, but remember what Balaam was hired to do. He was a pagan prophet. He was hired to curse Israel. See, Israel was on its way to the promised land. Israel was on a mission. Israel was on a mission to go into the promised land, to conquer the peoples there, to be a holy nation set apart for the worship of Yahweh. They were going to set up shop. This was their homeland. But they come to the, to the nation of Moab, right? And Moab doesn't want to let them through. And it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a hardship for Israel to press forward. And so Balaam's intention is to slow that down, is to tell the, the Israelites, you guys are making this way too hard. Just ease up on this religious thing. Settle down. Settle in. We'll, you worship our gods, we'll worship your gods. You marry our people, we'll marry your people. Just don't get so radical about all of these things and we know from numbers that indeed is in fact exactly what happened and so jesus is drawing on that imagery from the old testament and saying this is precisely the sort of thing that is happening in the church at pergamum now let me just pause there just for a second Because Jesus does tell us here, he who has an ear, let him hear. How does the words of Jesus Christ penetrate your heart at this point? You say, well, come on, Pastor Paul, I'm not going to the temple prostitutes. I'm not eating meat sacrificed for idols, and to which I would say, "I, I sure hope not, right? But there's a hundred other ways, are there not, in which we sort of stand in judgment over the Word of God, right? Like, come on, Pastor Paul, I I mean, these things over here are very important in my life, and I'm very committed to them, but these things, oh, come on. The way I run my business, or the way I treat my employees, or what I view in the privacy of my own time on my computer screen. Here's how I, here's my personal habits. Here's, you know, God's word. I mean, like, I, I believe in God's word, but, but this is a unique circumstance. This is, this is a special situation. I think God would, I think God understands my compromises in these areas. To which, go back to the text, Jesus says, repent, or I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Because before we unpack, pack, I think, what that means and the implications of that, let me just say, I think that one thing you'll notice in all of the letters to the churches in Revelation, that sexual immorality holds a very prominent place in the list of vices and sins of things that were going on in each of these churches. In fact, 
If you're a student of the Bible, you will know that it seems that the Bible spends an inordinate amount of time, as compared to other sins, talking about sexual immorality. And we have to ask, why is that the case? We know it's not because God is anti-sex. There is no other religion in the history of the world that devotes an entire book of the Bible to sexual love. The Song of Songs. There is, there is no other religion in the history of the world that says, in fact, sex is so good, it is supposed to be a metaphor, a picture, a parable of the relationship that Christ has with the church. So it's not because God is approved. It's not because God is, is attempting to restrict your choices so as to make life more miserable. No, no, in fact, it's quite the opposite. I think he's saying this, Jesus put such an emphasis on sexual sin because sexual sin of all sins is particularly destructive. I think this is what Paul means when he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6.18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. What is, what is Paul talking about there? Sinning outside the body or the body? I was thinking about the marriage one flesh relationship for a, for a second. We come to understand that as a husband is to love his wife as he loves his own body, that any sexual sin he or she commits impacts not just them, but impacts the other person as well. See, sexual sin is not merely a private matter. It always, always impacts someone else. It impacts your current spouse. It impacts your future spouse. It impacts the person you are with, their future spouse. Pornography destroys the lives of current and future spouses all over the world. But even more than that, even more than that, it's particularly destructive because Jesus says, I live in your body. I live in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that we are particularly culturally prone to compromise is in this area. Look, reading a newsfeed not long ago, the um, latest edition of the reality show, reality in quotes, The Bachelorette, the, the, the woman who is the bachelorette for this season is a self-identified Christian, professing Christian. And recently she got into a debate on the show with a, another contestant who was, who was also a self-professing Christian, a born-again believer about premarital sex. And as the, the man was challenging, well, first of all, she, as a, as a born-again believer, um, the bachelorette was very clear that I can do what I want with my own body. I can sleep with who I want to sleep with. I can do whatever I want to do sexually, but God still loves me. 
um, and nothing is ever going to change that. And as they began to debate this, and he was coming from a more, I think, biblical perspective, she ended up saying, I don't owe you anything. A man does not control anything I do. See, sexuality is not just about man, and it's not just about woman. It's about God. And for us, even as a community of believers, there is this sense that personal relationship with Jesus really just means spirituality without biblical accountability. And so verse 16, Jesus says, I'm coming with the sword. And let's look at that more closely. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. First question we have to ask is, who is them? Who is them? Well, I think in this context, it's to put it in contemporary terms, it's leaders, it's bloggers, it's writers, it's speakers, it's authors, it's influencers, it's people with platforms who are leading the charge to either redefine sexuality or to dumb down sexuality. And it's, it's just, it's not that big a deal. It's just, it's just sex. But here's the, the problem when we think about that. See, it's not just them, right? It's also us. It's also the whole church. See, we, whether it's this area or not, we all compromise, don't we? We all make our own judgment of God's word fit our particular context. But what I want you to see in verse 16, that this call that Jesus has to come with the sword of his mouth is in fact a grace to you and me. I want you to see how this is a grace to you and me. What, let's go back to 16. Verse 16, therefore, in light of the church compromising, being pulled in these different directions, he says, repent. See, a lot of times when we hear the word judgment, we cringe, don't we? That hurts our 21st century evangelical ears. We hear words like judgment because for most of us, we associate judgment with condemnation. They're one and the same. But you know what? Biblically, they are not. Now, we know that anytime someone is condemned before the law, of course there has been a judgment. But what Jesus is saying here is that not all judgment will end in condemnation. Why do I say that? Because Jesus is writing the letter. Jesus is calling the church to return to him. Jesus is calling them to repent. It's not as if they've committed the unpardonable sin. It's not as if they have sinned so far away that they could never return to Christ. No, no, no. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Jesus says, I'm giving you this warning now so that you can turn your heart back to me. You see, we, we, we could end this message now, and it would be religion, but it would not be gospel. It would not be gospel. See, this... This letter ends with gospel. Listen to the two things that Jesus says. He promises them to those who simply say, I am the man. I am the woman. Yep, Pastor Paul, that's me. That's me. I'm, I'm a Nicolaitan. 
Maybe not sexually, but probably that. But certainly in this area, or this area, or this area. And Jesus says, if you simply turn to me, acknowledge me, confess to me. There are, there, there are two amazing promises that Jesus makes in this text. Look in verse 17. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, what, now what does that mean? When the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were separated and they were struggling and they were wondering if God still loved them, was he taking care of them? What was one of the ways that God showed them that I love you? What was one of the ways that God showed them, I know where you live and I am not going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. What was one of those ways? And it wasn't just the cloud of fire or the pillar of fire or the cloud of the day. No, no, no. There was a tangible reminder. They would get up each and every morning and what would be on the ground waiting for them? Manna. Food. It was their reminder that God is with me. God loves me. God is providing for me. God is giving me my daily bread. There's a promise here this morning Not that when we clean up our act, everything will be okay. No, no, no. But when we confess our sin, Jesus says, I'm never closer to you than when you call out to me in need. I'm never more intimate with you. I never have closer communion than when you cry out for me and say, I'm the man. I'm the woman. See, this is not about cleaning your act up before you can come to the table this morning or, or come to God or come talk to a pastor. No, no, it's exactly the opposite. The only need is that you know you need him. And Jesus, that's why Jesus, remember in John, says, I am the what? The bread of life. I'm the bread of life. So Jesus promises you this morning his very presence. Number two, look back in verse 17. I will give him the hidden manna. And number two, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. See, in ancient times, to gain admittance to the feast or the celebration or the guild or the club, you had to have a special rock that they would hand out ahead of time. It was a white stone. Of course, this is where we have the genesis of our being, this idea of being blackballed from a from a club, for example. But this white stone was this, was this ticket to admittance. It meant I belong. It meant I'm a part of this group. I'm, I'm, enjo- I'm invited and enjoined to, to jump into the festivities. And Jesus is saying, when you turn to me in repentance, when you confess your sins, when you identify Yourself in this text, this, number one, I'm, I'm, I'm your man, I don't leave you. But number two, this is in itself the very ticket. It's the very privilege. It's the very entrance into relationship with me. See, a lot of times we, we have the opposite idea. Is that if, if, God, if I kind of expose all the things going on in my heart, then God would not accept me. This text tells us it's the exact opposite. When we come to Christ with those things, he hands us the stone and says, 
I enjoin fellowship, communion with you. Welcome to my kingdom. Walk with me, you friend of God. I love this language about this stone that he gives each of us has a name on it that only you will know. And I'm looking at all the, the couples out here this morning, and, and I know some of you well enough to know that y'all have like secret names for each other. Be honest, right? You got those secret names, like those names that you just kind of tell each other in private and your kids hear them once in a while and they think it's sick and they're, they're embarrassed, okay? But there's certainly nothing you would want to declare publicly, right? Well, what, is the, what do those secret names communicate? Well, they communicate closeness and intimacy and love and unique relationship, because there's something you and your spouse share that only the two of you share together. Jesus says, I have a special relationship with you, my people. Just, just acknowledge your sin. Just acknowledge your brokenness. I, I know it. I know where you live. I know where you struggle. I, I know the issues going on in your life. Just acknowledge it to me. Turn to me. And I'll give you my very presence. I will not leave you. I will give you the stone with your name written on it. I will enter in that communion with you. I will usher you into my presence, into my, com- my kingdom. And the question this morning for Four Oaks Community Church is, do we have ears to hear? Do you have ears to hear? That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for myself. And this morning as we come to the table, we come celebrating, remembering, holding up Jesus, him who has the words of life, who has the sharp two-edged sword, who's spoken that word against sin, your sin, my sin, once and for all, and now invites us in to know him. And I ask our leaders who are serving communion to, to join me up here to serve these elements. And I'm going to ask the rest of us, just spend a minute or two praying, number one, God, show me my heart. Where am I like the Nicolaitans? Where am I like the church in Pergamum? And Lord, give me courage just to admit who I am. And to turn and come to you to receive the manna and the stone. Just spend a minute or two doing that silently to yourself.